the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Welcome to the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We have some amazing guests. Today, we are going to be talking to the Galway Rape Crisis Center, and we'll have two special guests from there, Michelle Caulfield and Susan Costello, who both work with the Galway Rape Crisis Center for many years now, and they're going to tell us all about how the organization is run and how they do their fundraising, how they get volunteers to help them, everything involved in the whole process. And of course, also, we're going to talk about the consequences of rape, the statistics of rape in this country and around the world, because rape is one of these things that is prevalent in society still. And with the advent of social media and more pornography and you know television and movies and everything, we have an overabundance of rape and it's a bad thing. And we need to try and address this with our young people and with our adolescents and also, you know, college goers and adults. And we need to inform people that if they are in a situation where they have been raped or a victim of sexual assault, they can go to centers like the Galway Rape Crisis Center for help. So we urge people, you know, listen to the show, listen to the girls speaking, listen to the things they tell you, because if it helps you, then that's what we want. We want to help you and we want to highlight this situation as it is in Ireland and around the world. So Thank you for joining us today, and this is a very important conversation. So let's go over and talk to Michelle and Susan. Okay, so today I'm joined by Michelle Caulfield, the Training and Education Manager with the Galway Rape Crisis Centre, and Susan Costello, the Fundraising and Communications Manager with the Galway Rape Crisis Centre also. So welcome to the show, ladies. Thanks, Lovely to be here, Simon. Thanks for having us. So ladies, we're talking kind of today about GRCC, the Galway Rape Crisis Centre, and we're talking about its origin, the work it does, and how it's changed over the years. So Michelle, let me start with you. Um, you've been with the, the organisation for over 20 years, and you've seen it kind of evolve. Can you tell us a little about the history of when it started? I can indeed. So the Galway Rape Crisis Centre, which is the second largest centre in Ireland after Dublin, opened its doors first in 1984 in a tiny, tiny little space in Mary Street. And then we moved on to Augustine Street and then we moved to the Clada. So at the moment we're in um, another area and moving back. We'll be moving back to the Clada hopefully in a couple of years. So you move back to the Clada? We'll be moving back to the Clada. So we were very fortunate to be given a house in the Clada and um, we outgrew it. So we had to move up to the Sisters of Mercy and um, the old Magdalene Laundry. So we're presently there at the moment and we hope to move back home to the Clada in about a year and a half when we have built our, our forever home, we're calling it, because once we get there, hopefully we're done. But, we, you know, it would have been a volunteer. It was, it was People were really, there was a group of women who were simply horrified at the lack of services for victims of sexual violence in our little city at the time. So they came together as a volunteer group and set it up. And I believe it was like half a house and then it was a full house and they were tiny. It was the old little townhouses in Galway from many years ago. But we've grown from that to a fully fledged uh, service with departments. I believe there's 32 of us in total now 
vast majority, I'd say about maybe 17 of those do our core work, which is the counselling work. Um, so we've grown, oh. hugely grown. Absolutely. You know, we're very, very proud of the team and where we are. And we, and more so again in the last four or five years. OK, uh, we're a fully fledged service. And our core is long and short term counselling for people from the age of 14 right up to 84, actually. Um, so, yeah, very proud of our work family. Yeah. You know, obviously, as I was looking at your websites and then, you know, other pages about rape in Ireland and the kind of the not stats as such, but the organizations, like you said, the Dublin Rape Crisis Center. But it's a shame, really, isn't it? Because a lot of these organizations are non-governmental. They're like NGOs. And obviously, you know, you're always kind of looking for funding and, you know, Susan, your job, obviously looking for funding all the time. It's quite difficult. So even though the state says they're doing a lot for this kind of thing in the modern age. This These organizations have to do a lot of their own work, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, about 8% of our services are funded. So there's always um, the deficit to be made up. So we'd have to go to the community, the local community, businesses, um, people within the community to help us to find those funds. Our services are continually growing. As Michelle said, we're the second biggest in the country so we're expanding really quickly and the demand for our services has increased so therefore we our funding needs have increased as well you know to meet those demands so yeah it's it's quite challenging to to come up with new ideas and stuff like that especially after covid we had such a change in the fundraising scene a lot of our fundraising before that was community based so you'd have the usual like flag days church gate collections and events within the community, and they just ground to a halt, more or less, during that period of time. And so for a small organization like GRCC, we had to go and develop really an online presence in terms of our fundraising to try to keep our income streams open and our fundraising streams open. So that was a challenge for a small um, group, group like ourselves comparable to the, to the bigger organizations. So that was quite a challenge. When you have like the Dublin Rape Crisis Center and you have like the Galway Rape Crisis Center, and I know there's all, some other organizations, and does it get any way competitive or do you guys like tend to work together well? Because if you're having fundraising campaigns and the Dublin Rape Crisis Center, you're, you're focusing them on Galway, but you're also focusing them nationwide. So if they're doing something at the same time, I'm sure that can be overlapping, you know, that kind of way? And that would, wouldn't be an issue now that we would would have, really, which is interesting, because we would focus primarily on Galway City and County in terms of our fundraising, because we there's other fundraising um, centres like Mio, Sligo, that surround uh, Galway as well. And we would just focus our attention in County Galway because well that's just just how it's always been and in in terms of competing then that doesn't come into play particularly pre-COVID that would have been the case because it's within your own community that you're fundraising and I suppose that would have crossed over maybe if you're doing online campaigns and stuff like that and you would be competing against not just like rape crisis centres but you're competing against big big organisations big charities that are well-known national charities that would have like a team of social media people that are experts in this area so that was challenging and that was you're competing against the big players then and you are going to the same um, pot of people that they that they are reaching as well so so that way 
you lose your identity a little bit online because the people that you would have um, had connection with within your own community, we lost that during COVID because we weren't present out in the community in the physical sense. Of course, the services were still continuing. So we were, that was a big challenge for us to compete with the bigger, the bigger charities and the resources that they had, but not with the other rape crisis centers because they all focus on their own areas because you can sometimes see it i know in the past if i've done any podcasts with you know like suicide groups or different groups like that sometimes there isn't um a competition kind of thing or there isn't any there no one's a threat to each other's fundraising but obviously you can see it doesn't matter if if someone is running a fundraiser, whether it's just an ordinary person and someone starts running a fundraiser for the same type of thing, they are already competing for people's donations. So you can see it on a larger scale, too, that the online presence could overlap with other campaigns, couldn't it? Absolutely. I suppose we, we're very blessed like that, that our supporters, you know, supported us all through COVID pre-COVID, after COVID, if you call it after COVID. I suppose competition is, is, is competition because all charities are underfunded. All charities have great causes. So, you know, we are, we are going to the same people time and time again looking for, for their support. So you can call it, I suppose, competition if you want. But people are very generous and we've been very lucky that, you know, our supporters are so loyal and they recognize that the value of our services and the need for our services. So so they do time and time again support us. So we're lucky in that regard, I suppose, Simon. You know. I would go as far as saying we're very lucky to have Susan because the vast amount of rape crisis centers don't even have a fundraiser. You know, it's done through small teams of volunteers. That was one of my earlier jobs when I joined the center first. We couldn't have afforded to even consider having a professional role of fundraising. So there's 16 rape crisis centres. I would say possibly three or four might be lucky enough to have a fundraiser, somebody that can lead the campaigns, lead the flag days, lead the church day and create fundraising. And in terms of competition, I, it doesn't happen, would you believe? Like uh, we're very connected and close to the other centres in terms of the clinical work. We would get trainings together to try and cut the costs and that. Like we would do stuff with Mayo all the time and where the, there's a manager's forum and they're always moving forward and connecting and working with Tusla and looking at getting more money in from government for section 56 and 39. So we don't have that competitive piece, which is, as you say it, I'm surprised because it's not, it's actually not there. But we, who we're competing with is the big glossy guys who I won't name, but we all know them and um, who have teams of fundraisers um, all the time, you know, so yeah, I would actually, it's a great question because I don't think there, I don't think there's maybe three of the 16 centres would be lucky enough to have a fundraiser. So they they just get stuck in a funding punch and that's kind of it. You know, they're left long waiting lists. There's nobody coming in with money unless, again, they're lucky enough to be involved in the business community. And the public have gotten really good at, at funding, actually. They've gotten better. But for the most part, uh, I wish there was a big, huge amount of cash that we're all fighting for, but there actually isn't. Genuinely, there isn't. The problem is with fundraising in a brutally honest kind of way is that in the past there have been organizations in Ireland who have fallen by the wayside because of corruption within it. And I remember speaking to Colin Farrell and, you know, he, he did his suicide, you know, awareness thing and, and the stamp out suicide. But at, in the end, then he was ripped off by the money by one of the fundraisers. So it's a very shocking thing. And I know, obviously, when you have NGOs, you know, they're 
they're having, you know, they're supporting a great cause and then people are giving the money. So there's a real level of trust. But when that trust is broken, uh, sometimes people can be really hurt by it. And so if another NGO starts up or an NGO, you know, changes its name or does whatever, I'm sure there people go, well, no, I, I'd stick with my own charity because I've been with this for years and stuff. So it's it's a kind of a it can be a bit of a minefield sometimes, can't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've, we've, everybody remembers the bad news, you know, yeah, the horror yeah. stories and the CEOs on 150,000 a year. And we all, that stays with you. Like, and I mean, people that work in a charity, it hurts us all. It makes Susan's job so much bloody harder, to be honest. But I mean, I can give you an example. The last four people that have come on board from our own director have taken cuts in salaries. They've left private sectors in the education sector. And they've come to work with us and literally taken cuts in salaries to do to do what it is they do. And even just very qualified trauma therapists that could go out into the world and earn a hell of a lot more money, stay in the center doing the work that we do. So we're not motivated by money. We're very underfunded, as, as Susan said. It's more of a vocation. It truly is. And, and, and um, you know, there's yeah, our, our CEO is worth three times what she actually gets. And that's how hard she works. She judged genuinely. And we all are. But, you know, you've kind of gotten this piece of this patriarchal piece and, you know, where a woman's charity is never going to be as wealthy as, as a charity that's covering all. And to say that nine to 10 percent of our clients are male, you know, so that, it's really important. We, we support and, and take care of male survivors who have been violated by men and women. But ultimately, uh, we're, we're, we're doing a phenomenal service to our government and we're saving them millions. In, in, in all that we do and to get more money is really really important to us and we couldn't survive without our local you know putting their hands in their pockets. How would it change if the government came to let's say your organization or the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and said we want to take what you're doing and make it into a governmental organization with the same teams everything but state funded would that is that something that you would simply work really well or you'd say no that would actually be more complicated how would that kind of work if it ever happened I, I don't see that as being complicated. I think, you know, we have a phenomenal system for really good value for money. So I suppose if they could give us more money to do that well and pay all levels, that would be better. And maybe we could tackle the waiting lists that are, that are consistent. You know, we just get on top of waiting lists and they fill back up again. You know, 45% of our clients presently are people between the ages of 14 and 24. So, you know, would we take more money? Yes. I, I, I don't think we would need to change that system. We just need to be more financially backed in a way. More funding in the right areas. Yeah. So more like on par even with our national counselling service, you know, um, that would be amazing. Who also have phenomenal waiting lists and, and all the rest. But, you know, we just really need to invest more in mental health because that's what we're working with ultimately, you know, with sexual trauma. Inevitably, left alone, you know, it, the long-term effects of mental health are widespread in our communities. And if we don't get to those people, that just gets worse, not better. Um, yeah, just, yeah, I'll just um, add to that what Michelle is saying. Um, it's absolutely right. Um, and one of the things that we're working on at the moment is is to get um, the information out there about what exactly Galway Rape Crisis Centre does while counselling is like forefront of our services. There's so much more that to the organisation. Um, Michelle is involved in the education and training, going into schools and lots of other stuff going on at the moment that we want to get 
out to the wider community and let people know exactly what it is that we do. So we want to just create a link with the community where they can get to see where we can tell them the story about, behind the name so that they're familiar, so that the Galway Rape Crisis Centre is one of those organisations that you would think of and think of supporting, that it's not left to the side because of, of the content that we deal with. You know, you mentioned there, Simon, about suicide and that. And I think maybe 10 years ago, the whole notion about suicide and that wasn't talked about enough. And now it is It's very much talked about in schools, in the media. It's much more acceptable to talk about that type of content. So for the content that we deal with, abuse, sexual abuse, trauma, and a whole lot more besides that, it's, it's content that people are sometimes nervous of, afraid of, and we have to get it um, out there into the wider community so people are more, more relaxed, more open about speaking about the subject matter. And I think once we do that, I think we'll get more people involved in supporting us. So it's nearly a double-edged sword. It's, it's about people becoming more acceptable of speaking about sexual trauma, sexual abuse, and not hiding away from it. And then in turn, that will help us get more people to support us with our fundraising and that. So it's, it's, it's like it has a knock-on effect. So I think for us, actually creating a positive story around what we do is really important. And that's a piece of work that we're, we're working on at the moment is to get that message across. Um, you know, They're all really good points because every part of the process is necessary. But there's one part, obviously, that I would like to talk more about today. OK, lots of things aren't talked about with stuff. So let's kind of get to the nitty gritty and say with Michelle, I saw there actually yesterday where rape is kind of classified. There's like rape and then rape section four. No, there's different classifications in the legal system for rape, isn't there? So. And obviously that can lead to complications when it comes to prosecuting and also complications for the victims, because whether it be male or female, it's a different story, because obviously with a lot of rape cases, the majority of the victims are women and a lot of the perpetrators are male. So is it classified now? Is the classification of these things getting better or worse? It needs an awful lot of work, Simon. It's it's quite an old, archaic system in, in so many ways. So, you know, God, where do I even start? The, 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 our, our entire legal system um, needs education. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it doesn't, and it's case by case. So nothing is concrete and nothing, it, it really is like 4% um, actually gets into a court of law. Um, I have to say it is getting better, obviously. Um, you know, the age of consent, child sexual abuse, all of these things are, are lines and, and things that are, people are finally talking about. The media are reporting it better because there's somebody else that didn't always do any service to, to victims by how they reported it. But the system itself, in terms of legality, it doesn't matter about classification. It doesn't, those things are completely irrelevant in terms of how we hold and how we manage victims of sexual violence going through our systems. And that's our legal system, our, our, the guards even, who again, vastly improved. I could spend hours talking about how things are actually getting better. Things are improving. Um, but most, you know, by the time a person gets to a sexual assault treatment unit and does a few, um, a few crisis counseling pieces with us, they're more apt to report. But if you were to walk in as a survivor of sexual violence into a guard station right now, most guard stations don't have somebody specifically that they can report to. 
Now, again, we're very lucky in Galway. There's, uh, I believe, five preventive services um, that you can go to. But for the most part, our guards are not qualified to manage this crime well. And that's a problem. When you say a survivor, because if you walk into a sexual assault treatment unit, that's a rape or a violation that has happened recently. Yeah, very recently. Yeah. But yeah, a survivor so- is, uh, is like a cold case where it's something that happened in their past or when they were younger. So you don't have the treatment part. So our sexual assault treatment unit is open. um, I think it's coming up on 10 years. And research says that if we can get a victim through the sexual assault treatment unit, through the forensic, through the team, the supportive team, we we do the we train the psychological support workers. And Sarah Jane manages that if we can get that system, get somebody to that system. Everything is better. The healing, the medical health, the sexual health, the, 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 the chances that they'll actually go ahead and report and take a crime through into the legal system without that support it doesn't happen and and that's a tragedy because if we don't have more people reporting and going through the system then nothing will change unfortunately we have that kind of a system in ireland where things need to be happening and we need data and we need the research to make the change and make things make it different so the sexual assault treatment unit is great for that but we now have a protective service unit in galway that there's, I believe there's three people in that. They need probably 23 people in that group being on. So as I said, it is absolutely improving, okay. but the criminal system is so old and so it just doesn't work. You know, the, the rape victim has to prove that he or she uh, didn't consent. To right, yeah. So, you know, it is, it is, it's a complex crime at the best of times. And as I said, the sexual assault treatment unit makes that, makes right. everything more accessible. It is changing. It, it is. And I'd hate to leave anybody with the impression that it's not. It is. It's improving. I imagine that in cases that are involving more adults and, and non-consensual sex, a lot of the time alcohol or drugs can be involved. Whereas with younger people, it's more sexual abuse or rape by a family member or, you know, a family friend, this kind of stuff. So you have, diff- you have different kind of uh, areas yeah. of clarity in a sense, because obviously if there's alcohol and drugs involved, the people have lapses yeah. in memories and they're not sure of all the details, but they know something happened. Yeah, so 83 or 84% of the time when you have somebody that has suffered a sexual assault, either perpetrator or victim will be heavily intoxicated. But luckily yeah. now written into law, um, you can no longer use that uh, against somebody in, in a court of law. So that's really good. Those are some of the changes that have happened. In terms of um, statutory rape or peer-on-peer, so 40% of all sexual crime against children is peer-on-peer, so a sibling or a friend in or around a year or two years old. So the incidents, okay. I think one of the myths that are still out there is that stranger rape is common. And in reality, would you believe it's not? Stranger rape is a rare enough occurrence okay, okay. and very easy to report and very easy to get a conviction and very easy process to the criminal system very quickly. The more complex cases is when the, the sexual abuse happens within a family, within a marriage or a relationship. So the vast amount of perpetrators are well known to the victim. So in school, in college, working together, married or ex-partners. So that makes it much more complex. You know, it's very, very easy for any of us to walk into a garden station and report a stranger um, having committed any kind of sexual crime. It's much different if you've been married to that person, dating that person, in college with that person. And the vast amount of sexual assault and rape happens within relationships. That, that's the uncomfortable conversation that we need to, to be having. See, this is the thing, isn't it? Because 
you know, obviously you're the education manager and, you know, in society in general, and not, I don't even want to just say just for men, because I like there's there's a part of it as well where where mothers and women and sisters of perpetrators are involved. But when I say about the first part is that obviously men and fathers and grandfathers have to take a role now in educating their family members. And I actually read a case recently in the States where this guy was on a forum and he said, my son told me that he raped a girl at a party and it was an accident. Da, 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 this happened. But he said he told me and his mother and I said, we have to go to the police. We have to act on this. And the mother was the one that stopped it. And she said, no, no, no. So I see this a lot in Spain here where there's this kind of machismo, this sexism. But what happens is you get a lot of rape cases and violations and stuff. The perpetrators are men and let's say the victims are women. But what happens is that the mothers are the first ones to protect their sons. And it's like this vicious circle because girls here have a fear of men for that kind of reason. But then when they become mothers, they add to the problem. Lovely machismo. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, like we could go through the cultures and, and possibly Irish mothers. Um, I think generally speaking, Simon, women can be very hard on women. Um, it's that again, it's that misogynistic, yeah, judgmental, d- deeply ingrained, not my son. You know, it's like that somebody yeah. else does that. My yes, son yes. doesn't do that. And and that protection piece is huge and damning and very damaging. And what we would see a lot if, with the peer-on-peer um, sexual assault within families is shockingly to this day, the parents or the mother will take the side of the perpetrator rather than the victim. So this is how deeply ingrained that one would put okay. their son above their daughter. The victim, and yeah. I personally have seen that at least seven or eight times within my own caseload over the years. So that's pretty shocking. It's a family shame thing. Generation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, let's say if we look at men and women half and half, but then the thing is the women as when they're younger, you know, they can be maybe more of the victims. But the problem then for some women, as they become older and become mothers, they have to accept the responsibility of what their children do. So so that's why it's like a vicious circle, because, as you said, even a mother, I, like, I don't know if this is true, but I can imagine that there have been cases where a mother may have been a victim of sexual abuse as a child or as a young woman. But then when it comes to taking responsibility for her own son's actions, yes. maybe that motherly love is stronger than what had happened to her in the past. Do you know what I mean? You would imagine that she would say, no, no, I was a victim. You cannot do this to anybody. But sometimes that motherly love is so strong that it can hide the shame and put it under the carpet. I suppose that's something nearly that we it's passed down, isn't it? It's sort of a cultural thing. Yeah. It's cultural. It's like it's what's acceptable, and I suppose what you're saying, Simon, it's 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 ingrained in people, and it has to change. Has to come about from men and women. I think not. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's more deeply ingrained in that. I I think you know when somebody grows up as a survivor of sexual violence, you can departmentalize that really well, and you can be heavily conditioned into thinking, sure, look, I'm okay they'll be okay, you know, so it's a much deeper, yeah, it's a much deeper thing. And they tend to fall back into that victim piece of I didn't protect my child, I didn't do enough, it had happened to me, I should have known better, what was I thinking? Um, Very vulnerable um, dynamic, really, really vulnerable dynamic. And we try very 
hard not not to create more victims around everybody else. But you are so right. It's a conversation in that, that where females aren't like we do need to take responsibility for our sons and 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 admit that this is happening. You know, and and our statistics in in Ireland at the moment is that one in three will have a negative experience before they reach the age of twenty one. So it's somebody's son. It's somebody's partner and husband and father and grandfather. And the culture that, that we live in, that rape culture, is thriving. It's absolutely thriving. So the piece of not my son is, is not cutting it anymore because it's, it's somebody's son all the time. Yeah, uh, that it was their fault in some way nearly. We see there how there's not enough kind of safeguards for victims and everything. For young boys who you know, are not perpetrators, but maybe are on the road to becoming a perpetrator or, you know, are having sexual thoughts that they don't understand or there obviously is a path there too. And people are like saying, oh, well, you can't be looking at the perpetrator's state of mind and you can't be defending them. But the thing is, it's like every mental health disease or everything. If you get somebody who is on the verge of making a mistake and you can stop them making that mistake in the future, that's what we want to be doing, isn't it? So that's really possible. And it's it's part of why I'm still with the Galway Rape Crisis Centre. Yeah. I'm very, very passionate about the education piece. And research will suggest over and over that if we can get to that perpetrating mind at 13, 14 and 15, we can make a massive difference. So thus far in the Western world, from, from Spain to East Europe to America and Canada, we're not educating our boys. And they're in a different kind of trouble. You know, they're in a very toxic environment. Most of them are learning about sexuality and relationships through pornography. And even if they're not accessing pornography, their peers are accessing pornography. 38% of Irish females right, are learning right, about right. sex and how they're supposed to do sex through pornography. So you know, if they had access to what I keep hearing is good pornography, I have this conversation with people all the time. That's, you know, I'm sure I'm sure good pornography is great. Like, because if someone said, if, if people are talking to each other and they said, oh, I saw some good porn at the weekend, they're thinking it's just good quality. But what they're not thinking is it's actually consensual and more helpful and condoms. Uh, what are we doing next? Consent, you know, are you OK with this? I'm OK with this. But the reality is it's the difference between buying designer jeans and picking up your tenor jeans and pennies. <laughs> Our 14 and 15 year olds don't have access to good pornography. If they did, I'm all for it. In fact, I'd rather introduce good pornography with all of the, the good things that come with good sex and get rid of the hardcore horror stories that they're actually watching, which is really ugly stuff. And it's not, you know, years ago in my age, you'd have to go looking for it. Now it's bombarded and coming at them. We laugh sometimes because, you know, I was talking to a, a guy one day there and we were talking about that, you know, the availability of pornography for younger people. And the thing is now it's like it's on a tap, you know, whereas we used to always yes, laugh when we were younger. You'd hear of somebody having a videotape going around the village and somebody would be like, oh, can I get it next? So it was like a waiting list, whether it was good or bad. It was like the most sought after thing or a magazine or something. Different. So now, yeah. I mean, the problem yeah. is that it, it, there's too much availability and, and there's no filters in oh, the sense yeah. because yeah. a young person could look at something and maybe it's fine. But then it's what else is in there that leads them to something else. 
you know what? The looking at something is absolutely fine. When I think back, I mean, I, I remember looking at Playboy and seeing magazines for the first time. They're art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're absolutely beautiful pictures. But what they're seeing is so extremely violent and, and so hardcore. And the more dangerous, like, I mean, I'll give you an example that shocked a group of parents the other day. The most sold, sought after porn, so they can read this through the algorithms, I suppose, in the Internet. So the most sought after porn throughout the Western world right now is mother-son porn. Okay. Wow. So when you have 11 and 12-year-olds accessing that accidentally, they don't have an emotional context for something. So it's more like taboo. It, yeah. And it's deeply, deeply traumatizing if, if you don't have a context and you don't have language or an understanding. And the last thing you're going to do is go to your parents because the first thing they'll do is take the phone or the iPad off you because now you've come into some really dark stuff. So the kids are smarter than that. They don't want to have their iPhone or their smartphone to so they don't say anything and, and they keep watching this horrible. Yeah, that raises like a deeper question, doesn't it? Because we all know, like people have this conversation about, let's say, you know, if, if a girl has a, fo a good father, as an example, there's tendency sometimes to look for a partner if she you know, is into men that's somewhat similar to her dad. There's characteristics and traits. So obviously men do the same thing with women. You yeah. know, they'll they look for somebody who maybe subconsciously reminds them of their mother. but you know, in that kind of situation, it, if your mother finds porn in your computer, but if your mother finds mother and son porn, that's really deeply embarrassing. Yeah, that's, isn't that's it? a bad, bad Sunday afternoon. It's a weird dynamic then between the mother and son. Well, I, I would have to say mother rarely finds out. There's great lengths gone to that, yeah. here that, that mother doesn't find out. But it's... Um, that's just one example of, of the horror, you know, that, that there's no control. Once they're in that dark world, more and more obscene, taboo, dangerous stuff comes at them. And it also sets up, you know, like pornography is, you know, everybody in pornography is stunningly beautiful and well endowed and exaggerated, exaggerated. Like I will ask, you know, I go into schools and I will ask groups of what is the average length of penetration time in straight couples across the Western world? And there'll be 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes. And you're like, you're definitely watching porn, folks, because it's nothing close to that. Then, you know, and then women are, are, are trying to um, dress like with, you know, or all the fake tan or, you know, piercings. They're doing things that they're seeing in pornography and they're acting and behaving in a way that you know, pornography is set up to set women up. So you have these young people not getting educated, being visually stimulated by, by this hardcore pornography. So it's a, it's a disaster and a crash waiting to happen. For me, the new type of pornography is TikTok. Yes, absolutely. Because the problem is that, like, I, I do say this sometimes to people, we have this society now where, you know, there's the Me Too movement and we're trying to have equality and, you know, there's all these movements towards women's rights and everything. But then on the other hand, you have this degradation of women by themselves because they want to be as good as other girls and especially young girls. And what's happening is, especially for young boys, you know, they're seeing these beautiful girls and very sexy and everything. And these girls have this really tremendous pressure to look like this. And, you know, I'm going to say this straight out loud. A guy said to me one day, and I, I was teaching English class, and he said, you know, in America, they call it big titty TikTok. And I said, why? And he said, because the bigger your boobs are, the more popular you are. And the truth is, that is true. 
in society, the better mm. looking you are, the you know, the sexier your body, the more popular you can be on these kind of sites. And unfortunately, that's fine for those girls who are popular. But for the girls who are not, it leads to this really insecure feelings. And then it also leads boys to think this is the perfect woman where it's exaggerations. And, and young girls are getting cosmetic surgery to be TikTok stars. So for me, that's the new type of pornography. It is. And it's very um, mainstream. You know, it's all over their phones. It's all over their TVs. It's all over advertising. And it's doing untold amounts of damage in terms of anxiety levels, mental health, um, sexual disorders, confusion around sexuality has never been more. We've never had more information in terms of, of how we need to be educating our children socially, emotionally and yeah. sexually. Um, but the, yeah, they're, they're meeting some hardcore life stuff that's just really unfair because we're not preparing them for all of this. They're living online and, and they're living through TikTok. Very superficial, very sexualized and just really ugly. It's a really ugly world that they're going Adults can understand it, but can see it. Yeah, we have If an adult has a good rationale and they know the difference between, you know, a, a sexual content, hardcore sexual content, whatever, and they are in a good place, they can say, okay, this is too much or that's whatever. But the thing is, if kids see this, they can't know, is this right? Is this normal? Should I be aiming for this? They have no emotional context. They don't have a language. They're not prepared for it. You know, we need to be preparing kids at eight and nine and 10 for living online because that's what they're doing. That's their world. So we're at seven years of age. We're handing them this worldwide web in, you know, on a screen and having no preparation for what they're actually going to be looking at. So, you know, pornography addiction is the second after gambling in Ireland. So that will give you an idea. You know, we, we have the most screens per head of population, I think, probably in the world. But yeah, pornography addiction is the second most common addiction after gambling in Ireland. Wow. And that, obviously, when you talk about the numbers, and, you know, I know that in a lot of third-level institutions, that, you know, there, there can be a lot of rape cases and everything because of, you know, non-consent and alcohol and everything. But when you consider the progression, these teenagers who are learning about sex from social media and from pornography and then go to college or university and then get introduced to real sex but want it to be something different or expect it to be something different. And then obviously when alcohol or drugs are involved, it's a whole different story. And then People make mistakes and they say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I didn't realize I was so drunk, but the crime has been committed, hasn't it? Well, I wish they did wait until they were college age, Simon, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, there, there are cases in junior level in secondary school. Wow. You know, all over the world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, what is it? The first, when the, the, the social brain goes into secondary school, it starts, it picks up, you know, we, that, that we're, we're just ingrained to socialize and meet other human beings and, and think about entering into, you know, an intimate, an intimate relationship with somebody else. So this is all starting earlier than it ever did before. So it's like literally 13, 14 and 15. The age of consent in Ireland is 17, but we know that somewhere around 50% of 15 and 16 year olds are sexually active. Um, so this is a bigger problem than college. You know, college is where you actually go out into the adult world. Um, and it is a very vulnerable time, actually, going into college. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we are such we live in a, such a hyper sexualized culture that 15 and 16 year olds, that's what we're looking at now in terms of going into sexual relationships, maybe and not ready for them. Um 
But yes, pornography has an awful lot to answer for. That's where the education is happening. So, Michelle, when you, in your training and stuff, like what's your kind of general modus operandi? Do you go to schools or do you do training in centers or how, how do you kind of train people? Where does it happen? So we were lucky enough to receive some funding um, six years ago through the Manuela Foundation and we started a research piece and we based, I was in Galway, I was the project worker in Galway and we also had a project worker in Wexford, Kerry and Dublin. So we did a huge piece of research about what works well in terms of sex education and what doesn't and it was highly successful and it's now gone on to its second trench. But what works well is, um, what works well, so much works well, is like getting in there. First of all, because I'm going to pre-warn you, I could talk about this all day long. No, it's fine. That's that's what we're here for. So it, we have an eight to 10 hour program that we do with kids. And what we found out in the research is by the time we're doing it in TY, which is averaging 15, 16 years of age, we're two years too late. So now. Okay. Wow. In TY. In TY. Wow. So now we're going into second years. So we look at consent, sexual violence, prevention of sexual violence. We do workshops um, around all of this. We, we do pornography walking debates, consent walking debates. We get them working with themselves. They would ideally prefer a stranger like me to come into their classroom and facilitate conversations, give them stuff, talk to them in real time. They don't want their parents by the time they get to this age. Those two things are not supposed to be happening in the same room. So ideally, you would have one parent at home doing really good education. But in in reality, I know my own 14 year old refused to listen to me. He was great up to about 13, listened, we conversed and by the time he got to 14, I yeah. got the hand in my face. You are not allowed to say three letter words and be in the same room and talk to me about all of that. Yeah, so yeah. they'd much rather, you know, the, the, the educational settings are there. So why don't we go in, you know, and, and do this and start? And we can start with consent and body autonomy. We can do all of those things in national school. And we can then just bring in the sexual piece around the 12, 13, 14. And we upgrade as they go along. So the Irish government, and the, the, they are doing a really good job in the schools. Um, my only problem with it is they're ready to go. They've, they've updated the content. They've included pornography and consent and the language is there and the exercises are there. However, 80% of the teachers don't want to do it. They don't feel equipped. They don't feel educated. They're not comfortable talking about pornography in a classroom with 30 kids. So the next piece that we'd love to be involved with down the road is training the teachers to do this well. Can I ask you a question there? Because I read there a couple of years ago that in the Netherlands, they introduced pornography to very like kids at 11 and 12. But the the schools do it. But it's actual pornography they introduce to the schools. So they, they watch it. And what they're trying to do is create this openness about pornography, that it's not a taboo subject by the time they get to 14 or 15. And even I think it could be even younger. But because, again, look, let's let's be honest, you know, the sex education videos, when you put them on, you're not going to put on porn. You're not going to say, I'm going to show you a real sexual event and a porn event because the school would be like, no, 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 you can't put that on or whatever. But if people, if kids... Even if they said, I'm going to leave the room, let you guys watch it, and they might joke. But the the point about it is, sometimes when we have examples and we have training things, we we can't actually be very open and, and you know, talk about the real thing. We, can, we can't show the real videos or whatever because of law and because of taboo things. It's it's quite difficult, isn't it? It is difficult. Um, and, you know, with parental consent, and of course, we know they do things so well in the Netherlands. So I have read about that. And what that is, is not pornography as we might know pornography. 
but it's videos showing what real sex it's looks videos. like. So it's not fabricated or it's not edited. It's real people with real shapes and small penises and small boobs and big boobs, you know, the whole lot. And it's real. And and it's you wouldn't even consider it pornography, I think, by our standards. So it would more be like erotic. Yeah, this is this is what happens. This is, you know, and it works really well. And it's not um, it's done in a safe environment. There's parental concern, consent. There's facilitators in the room in case anybody um, says or has questions or so. And it's not pornography. It's like this is what sex looks like with a real body. And um, so you won't end up in the court of law showing children under the age of you know, 17. No, because that's the thing, isn't it? Teachers would be like, are you no, crazy? Oh, yeah, it just wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. <laughs> you know, they obviously made a conscious decision in the Netherlands that if we do it the right way, we get parental consent. But in Ireland, because the church obviously is heavily involved in society, they'd be like, no, 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 it, it could never happen. And you're kind of thinking part of a lot of people would say, well, if, if it stopped my son or daughter being a perpetrator in the future, you know, for any reason, I mean, why not? I mean, because what's the difference between looking in the classroom or looking on the phone outside? With their peers. With their really peers. Possible, yeah. Where they can laugh and ha ask questions. And, you know, you facilitate a conversation that could be awkward anywhere else. But with the, the right trained person, it's nothing but good. And, and it gives them a context, a context to what real sex looks like, you know, because it's not it's not pornography. It's not pretty. So then they have a realistic expectation and understanding. And the other thing, bar perpetration or, or anything else, the level of body dysmorphia and eating disorders and women that hate their bodies at a very young age has escalated all through the Western world simply from watching pornography. Young women and young men, steroid juice is up. Um, they're all joining gyms, trying to lift power weight, trying trying to look like these extreme, pristine bodies. Yeah, I, I noticed that. I hadn't been home in two years there with COVID, and I was home there about a month ago or so. I noticed certain people, you know, that there's like a lot of overuse of the gym. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on having, you know, big legs and how you look and being like Thor and, you know, this kind of stuff. But also what I noticed, which is another side avenue, is... The, I did a podcast recently on the cocaine use in rural Ireland, and I was very shocked by the amount of young people and even talking to younger people that I know in Ireland. Some of them were really frank with me and they said, yeah, we all use cocaine and cocaine is being used around the table. So obviously that is not just a gateway drug to others, but it's also a gateway to non-consensual sex. Completely and hypersexualized behavior. Absolutely. So, yeah, cocaine is now the beer. Yeah, it's the beer of the new generation. You know, again, it's our generation. Yeah, completely. Where we'd have been sneaking in beer, you know, after a camogie match. They're now sneaking in cocaine. And I'm being very open about it, I believe, to the point it's really upsetting. They're, they're taking it like we would have had a beer um, and not even going into the bathroom anymore, like literally putting it down on the benches. And, and yeah. No, and, and doing it six people around the table. And not being embarrassed if one of them's not doing it because it's it's like this thing now where no no we're all doing it and it's a social drug and da 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 used for weight loss I might add Irish women are using it to lose weight yeah what's interesting as well more Irish women are using it you know housewives everything because the problem is that the price of it has come way down and you know there I couldn't believe when I was talking to the journalist about it and she's saying like she said you have you know cocaine deals being done in cow sheds in rural Ireland you know. And she said, it's just totally changed. So 
when you look Absolutely. at that, yeah. you kind of think to yourself, if that's how much Ireland itself is changing, you can imagine the knock-on effects of that and the bad knock-on effects like rape and, and do you know what I mean? Suicide, everything. Everything, you know, I mean, drugs are obviously going to affect your mental health. You know, if you're already vulnerable and you're, and you're going, you're choosing a lifestyle or being pressured to be part of a lifestyle. As I said, these, you know, Irish women are using cocaine to lose weight. So it just sets up all kinds of really scary, scary outcomes. And it's normalized and there's pressure to do it. And, you know, we lost a beautiful 19 year old girl at a party here a couple of years ago. And then it was becoming quite normalized. But yeah, outside of, of, all of the things we're talking about here, the effect of on mental health is just extraordinary at the moment. It's just it's snowballing into all kinds of, of disordered behavior and thinking. And it's ugly. Yeah, it's really, really ugly. Because of the use of alcohol, not just in the perpetrators, but in the victims, because, you know, people's inhibitions drop with alcohol and more so sometimes with cocaine and drugs like this. So people make the wrong decisions and it's a very like it's a bit of a minefield, the whole consent and non-consent and what alcohol was consumed and what drugs were consumed. But I can imagine the bureaucracy of it all and, the you know, were the, obviously the victims getting these hard questions in court, like, were you high at the time? Were you on alcohol? And, you know, where people can be saying, well, you agreed to it at the time when you were on drugs, but then you changed your mind. So this is very kind of a treacherous area for lawyers and the courts and the victims as well, isn't it? Because nothing is clear cut in that scenario when there's drugs and alcohol involved. I suppose, Michelle, you'd know a bit more about that, would you? It does. It complicates everything. Of course, it does, just like alcohol complicates cases. But as I said, you can no longer use it against a victim. Um, yeah, because it's often used as an ingredient to, to groom and ply somebody with alcohol to get them to a vulnerable place or state to which, you know, then you can sexually assault them. But um, it does it complicate things? It can do. It can do, but I would say to anybody out there is not to worry about that. If you've had a few drinks, you're allowed to have a, you are allowed to get drunk. In an ideal world, you should be allowed to walk down a promenade in Spain or Ireland. But you know, it's it's we don't live in an ideal world. And I would say, regardless of what you feel you've done, whether you were on cocaine, smoked marijuana, or drank a bottle of wine, please, if you feel you've been sexually assaulted, get to a sexually assault treatment unit and get taken care of. That that's more relevant than anything because we get I mean, we get very wrapped up in the cocaine and the alcohol. Like that's not the issue. It's an issue in the health. So, so we have to be careful not to yeah, it, of course, like I mean the Belfast case, uh, that lady had three drinks. You know, the, the boys that did the damage on that particular evening in Belfast were high on other things and drinking like I think for two days. She herself had just had two or three drinks. But we have to be really careful and not not getting hooked up on that, you know, because irrelevant, sober, drunk, high. If somebody makes the decision and chooses to sexually assault somebody else, mm. it's irrelevant what the environment or the circumstances were. So we have to be so careful. Yes, of course, of course. I suppose what it is as well is that there's so much external influence for young people through social media and especially with when COVID occurred, people became very isolated and they were accessing all their information, all their connections, everything was online. Um, so they were relying on that for, for all their information, for all their knowledge and stuff. So a huge part of the work we do here is through the education and training. And it's 
vital to give, give these children tools to be able to make the right decisions around consent, around, you know, what they want to do with their own bodies and stuff like that. And I think, you know, we recognize that here. You know, that's why we developed the education and training department. And it's a huge part of the work that Michelle does. So it's vital that we continue to develop that and to be able to, all schools should have this program to be able to offer to, to students and from second year on, I think, um, because these children need to have guidelines. They need to be able to open up. They need to have a support system in place that allows them to make right decisions, that gives them the confidence to make right decisions because they've been bombarded by on social media and being to- given wrong information, being given idealistic um you know, ways on how they should look and what they should think. And they need to be able to touch base and be given some really good, you know, basic knowledge that they can use then going forward in their own life situations that they know is, you know, coming from a good source that has their interests at heart because social media is developed to either sell something to you um, that you should look a certain way. There's all hidden agendas. So to have somebody coming into a school that is there with their best interests, I think is huge. And, you know, that's why I know Michelle is so p- passionate about it, is to be able to give these kids the skills and tools to make these right decisions for them. You know, so it's really, it's really important, that part of our work. And again, as I mentioned earlier, is just to get the whole, what the Galway Rape Crisis Centre does, is to get out into the wider community, like, you know, that this is another part of our work that people might be aware of that you know we're dealing with the outcome of what happens when things go when things go wrong when when it gets to that situation where we're dealing with the aftermath and our approach is to to try tackle it as you said Simon to you know to to you know inform and educate these people before they become a perpetrator you know it's, you know that is key it's like it's like anything, any illness. And I'm not saying that that is an illness, but, you know, prevention is better than cure. If you can start right there when you need to, which is second year or earlier, you know, and get them there and give them the tools and skills to be able to, and space to be able to explore all these different things is key. And so, as, as Michelle mentioned, yes. passion she has there for the education system and that, and training in the Galway Crisis Centre is something that's, fundamental to to you know our vision yeah you know so it's really important there's one thing isn't it that you kind of see it from different areas whether it's mental health or suicide or you know sexual assault sexual violence a lot of the time um kids don't want to be explained things where they feel like they're being talked down to or being you know being patronized or you know you don't understand us like you mentioned with your 14 year olds so I can imagine in those situations, the younger you can have good examples and like young teachers, for example, they are great ambassadors for those kids because you can get teachers in their 20s who could say, look at guys, you know, I'm not that far away from you. Maybe I'm seven years older than you or something to 16, 17 year olds. And but that's what it is, because the closer they are in age, maybe the more they will listen. 
Yeah. And as I said, like when they're learning together, that social, emotional and sexual growth, you just need a good facilitator, regardless of age. I mean, obviously, it's far superior if you can get somebody in their 20s and 30s to do this work. But quite often, they don't have the life experience, funnily enough, to have the confidence to do it. So um, my, my, my goal would be beyond even we don't it doesn't have to be zeroed in on sexual violence so right now a good a good piece of information is we know that Irish creches are bringing in autonomy consent anti-bullying being kind there is the foundation yeah oh yeah for for at that age yeah and they're doing that in Irish creches yeah they're, yeah. they're actually doing that so there is the foundation and then we add and we build to that. And as I said, by the time they get to fifth and sixth, that's where they need a little bit of sex education around consent and touching somebody else's body, sharing intimate images, which is a regular occurrence in fifth and sixth class, sharing outrageous pornography to, to get reacted. Let's talk about that. So kids in fifth and sixth, like with phones, are, with, are sharing images of each other. They're sharing sexualized images. They're going onto pornography websites and they're screenshotting stuff. They're going into OnlyFans wow. and and getting videos of like anal sex is the last one I heard. So it's the shock value of that. They're sending that onto each other. They're bringing it into school playgrounds and they're going, look, you know, they're trying to sell it. I have one story where a sixth class boy was selling images to two to fifth class boys. They're sending them on to girls and boys their age. This is the stuff that parents know nothing about. And it is happening consistently. As as a seventeen year old said to me, God, Michelle, that's genius. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> what a clever business. And the mother never knows. He'll be in global business, you know, like five years. But from imagine now. <laughs> imagine if he has no scruples in fifth class, what he'd be like when he's thirty seven. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he'll be running the pornography industry. Yeah, in yeah, he, he'll be he'll be trafficking and everything, you know. Yeah, the, the works like so. Again, this is this is a culture that is thriving, you know. And it's it's. I'm not worried about him, Simon. I'm not worried about mm. that guy. Yeah. I'm worried about the young men and women who have had have no scruples or have no concept of what's coming at them. They receive these images. They're in fifth class. They know they can't go to their teachers. They don't have a trusted adult they can have a conversation with. That escalates. Therein lies your severe anxiety and kids being diagnosed with the depression at 14 and 15 years of age. They're already living in this horrible culture with no emotional context from one safe adult to do this well. And I say like a million kids go back to school every year in this country. One million children between the ages of five and 22. So they're going back to school and college. And at no point have adults, facilitators, education authorities come and go, you know what? We need to give them some emotional, sexual, social information. So our stride. If you don't mind there, because I think that's something like even when you've said it about the, you know, the fifth and sixth class. But basically, just by repeating what you said, because I think it's something that mothers should actually stop and take a look at. There are a lot of kids in fifth and sixth who are sending each other images of sexual images, pornography. And as you said, the mothers don't have a clue. So mothers who are listening, take note of this because. And fathers and fathers. <laughs> and fathers, exactly. Sorry, don't want to not, just not include mothers. the dads, yeah. mm -hmm. but anybody who scrutinizes their kids' phones and thinks they know everything that's happening, take another look. Yeah, and and you'd want to be um, very good at technology to find this stuff. Right. They're put in files that are coded. They're minded. Okay. They're deleted when they no longer serve a purpose. The average parent doesn't know how to to find this thing on their kids' phone. It's they're they are they are very good at this.
Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? So their minds, like obviously nowadays with technology and information, kids' minds are developing more, but it's the avoidance and the, they're managing to elude their parents' kind of uh, knowledge of this. Like they always have. It's, it's, you know, like, I mean, they always have. Kids are always ahead of their parents. So if you want to safeguard, and I've used my own too, um, they're 21 and 18 now, you want to safeguard your children against all of this, start talking to them at four and five and seven and nine and ten. So the first time that my son was sent um, pornographic images and sexual abuse images um, was 12 years of age and he came to me. So I had created, you know, a relationship um, all the way along from when he was very young. And there was many drives in cars where there was no eye contact, but lots of conversation around sex and sexuality. And a great pace to catch the yeah. Irish male is the car, has to be said, or the promise of food at the end of the journey is always another good one. Because guaranteed, by the time that Irish male or female gets to 13 or 14, you're going to get the hand. Do not speak to me about sex or anything like it. So the time, the window is to start at four. And keep going in bits and pieces. So when a, a hip hop song that's talking about raping women comes on the radio, you can turn it up, not down and go, what do you think of that? Do you hear those words? What do you think he's saying? Do you think he's angry? Yeah. What? Have a conversation. It's just a conversation. It's not, you don't need to be educated to have a conversation with your son or daughter. You don't, actually. You just need to care enough to get through the awkwardness to have the chat. And from that, he or she will come back to you the following week and go, Mom, do you know what I heard? Dad, did you see this in the newspaper? So it's about having that trusted adult that can create a space so that your child can emotionally develop through something. So that when he is hit with something horrendous at 14 or 15, he can go, Jesus, there is that crap again. An X out of it. No, because you've trained them emotionally, sexually, every spiritually. You know, you, you yeah, model they're not like so this shocked. open conversation. It's just a conversation. It's not difficult if you started earlier. Where it gets difficult is when you go sit them down at 12 to have the talk. And they could have done with that talk at nine. It's like everything, whether it's racism or, you know, gambling or anything. The more you educate people earlier, it's not such of a culture shock then when it comes along. So the problem is in the past, everything's been very taboo and, you know, you hide things and you don't show them. And then people, you know, get exposed to it and they get addicted or they want more of it because they have been it's been hidden away from them. So as you said there, from four years of age, you know, you start talking about things and a really interesting thing is nowadays with this generation, I remember a few years ago talking to my kids and you start, you know, you're thinking, OK, I'm going to start talking about relationships with boys and girls in school. But then you say to yourself, hold on, Simon, I have to rethink this because you say to yourself, I have to also include the fact that one or two of them could turn out to be gay. Right. So you have to say, is there any boys or girls or anyone you like in the school? And then you're kind of going, wow, this is a, it's, it's good, but it, it's something that you never imagined because you didn't have that with your parents. So, you know, you'd say, you always said, oh, is there any boys you like or any girls you like? And it was always the opposite sex. But nowadays you have to kind of talk about it like it could be someone of the same sex and in a very open way. And if you do that at an early age, we found we started doing that when they were young and then it became a very natural thing. And like I always say, the great thing about young people nowadays is they can choose a sexuality, but they can also go back to the sexuality that, that, that you thought they were going to be. You can do whatever you like. 
it's really it's really really normal developmentally to go through having crushes on yeah. the same sex you know to have best friends um who are the same sex as yourself to have boy crushes on boys a couple of years older than you when you're male yourself that's very developmentally normal very developed and it's where the whole bisexuality piece came from so again it's about your language you know who you fall in love with regardless of their sex you know so there's an awful lot of shame around boys liking other boys and we need to stop that we really do it's not benefiting anybody like you said that conversation in the car where there's no eye contact even if there isn't if you still have it and you can find a way to talk about the more you do it then one day there will be eye contact and then it'll be a very open and honest thing won't it absolutely and we'll stop Absolutely. things happening. Yeah, I mean, our children are very self-conscious. We will stop that. This is it. If we model acceptance and tolerance and understanding for that darker part of, you know, developing sexuality, then they're able to come to you when they're in trouble. And that would be from a perpetrating piece or from a victimization piece or just living in the world that is so hypersexualized where they're feeling not enough. Then they can come to you and go, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am. I can't eat anymore. I'm smoking. I'm drinking. So you ha you've created a valve where you can go, you know what, let's look at this. Let's have a chat. And if we need to bring in outside help, we get outside help. And that piece is changing because there's a lot of Irish adolescents actually attending counselling. So that's a real big positive that's changed, you know, again in the last 10 years is parents are reaching out. It's not a thing that you're doing only if you feel you're sick. No, it's something no, that will help you in your ordinary life. Yes, developmentally, growing up is incredibly hard and quite traumatizing as well. So if you need a bit of help from an expert, somebody that can hold that and reassure and manage and care for and then feedback to the parents that he or she are going to be absolutely fine. This is this is developmental anxiety. If you were growing up in the world he or she is growing up in, you'd be anxious too, very anxious because it's a very anxious world. So that, that that's really good. Irish parents are going, OK, please, six sessions of counselling. Um, and it can make all the difference to the developing mindset, whether that be sexually, developmentally, education-wise, friendship. Their world is incredibly complex, much more than it would have been when we were 16 and 17. Much, much more hard. I want to talk, obviously, about your, you know, Susan, your fundraising and stuff. But before I do, there's one thing that I want to kind of address is the whole area of consent, right? So you see now in some countries they have these consent hubs and consent applications and stuff. But in a theoretical world, consent is something that's given between two, you know, respectable people. But but also people have this thing where they say in the heat of the moment, like that it's a passion killer, you know, like, you know, because people say, oh, imagine I pull out a nap and, you know, She's like, kiss me. And you're going, sorry, uh, would you just mind ticking this box to say, you know, so how does it work in a real world? This kind of apps or this kind of thing, because it, it's a theoretically it sounds great. But in the real world of passion and sex and everything, can it work? So I'll go back to the beginning when, when the consent module first came about. Most rape crisis centers kind of groaned and moaned and went, are you actually kidding me? Where, where are you going with this? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, in all, you know, explain, get two 15 year olds out in Montpellier to consent what consent is. So tell me what consent is. <laughs> and I would get asked that regularly in schools, like, what? What is this word? You know, so I suppose what it yeah, did is yeah. like, I can only use our own university, NUIG 
who were very good at this and they have the consent hubs and they have the education. And so it gives a context. It was the start of a language. And like a lot of language, it either starts down on the street or it starts up in universities. So the consent piece is huge in, in NUIG and huge in all of our universities. We're doing a lot of training around disclosure and the law and how you manage somebody that discloses sexual violence. So it's a start, but no, there's a hundred shades of gray between the the yes and the no. So the conversations are needed beforehand, you know, so when we look at consent, we spend two hours on consent, would you believe? Now, if you had told me 20 years ago, I could speak to anybody about consent for two hours, you would have been, you know, laughing. But what it does is it creates a square you know, it's like, okay, what does consent look like here? And consent changes with relationships and consent changes as we get 10 years, every 10 years we age, consent is different. So we need a consent to write it into law. So if you were to look at sex and the law and rape okay. and statutory, consent is everywhere. So again, this normalizes and, and creates a conversation. So the piece about how do you how do you prove that he or she had consent or consent was given? I mean, there's plays in college written about. So it doesn't. It actually doesn't. But it creates a conversation for everybody to have. So one of my favorite things to say, you know, the three C's, a 15, 16 year old son has been out to a party. What does he need? Well, he needs the three C's. He needs communication. He needs consent and he needs condoms and and that you know that's where we go and we build in the consent piece culturally and it takes 10 years to build in a layer culture a change or a shift in culture because we were notoriously bad and so saturated in shame we couldn't talk about sex in a good way not to mind sex in the darker bad way that makes sense so we were never positive about it. we were never sex positive in ireland that that's like an you know it just doesn't happen but what could what the module of consent does is it's created a language where we're talking about it and there's layers to consent and we're doing the goal crisis center are actually doing that work in about 20 percent of our schools presently and it works because what it does is after two hours you have 25 15 year olds walking out the door that can now talk about consent and all that comes with consent, the kindness, the mutual, the ongoing, the respect. Are you liking this? The yes, that's in the eye contact. So it's nonverbal. There's non, there's the, the body piece. How do you know when somebody is with you? Are they enthusiastic? Do you have eye contact? You don't have somebody that's shut down or too drunk to help them. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking. You know, I'm facilitating these conversations and they're literally coming up to me at the end of the class going, thank you so much because I now know. I, I get it now. Or if you're just throwing the word consent out there like they have to in legality. Is there a reciprocation? Like, is it a two-way thing? It's not any less confusing than it was 30 years ago for those two 15-year-old boys in East Galway. Genuinely. You know, it's still complex. Because see, that word, consent, is kind of like, it, it's like a wall between people if they, if they were saying, oh, we, we were going to have sex now. And we have to talk about consent. But when you have all the micro pieces and the micro levels broken down, like that reciprocation, are both parties happy? Now, of course, alcohol, drugs, all of these things muddy the waters a bit. Yeah, yeah. But, but still, if someone is educated and even if they're on cocaine or on al alcohol, at least then, you know, they mightn't have the same kind of foresight, but they'll have some as opposed to having no education. Some basis, yeah some basis for something 
absolutely. You know, it's 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 key. If we're not socially, emotionally and sexually educating our kids, we're going to be in even more trouble down the line. Like right now, there's so many adolescents on waiting lists and rape crisis centers to be seen who are so traumatized, you know, by sexual experiences that we're failing them. We are absolutely failing our kids by letting them in and in, into this big wide world and not preparing them whatsoever like for what they're facing and what they're being asked to do and what's expected of them and, and I don't ever want to anybody to think that's listening to me that this is a female issue this is a human issue our boys are in trouble our boys are in big trouble. they are so confused they don't know how to flirt they don't know how to be they're frightened and nothing good comes out of fear Except anger. Explain that more that when you say they don't know how to flirt, you mean that they're not they're sexually afraid. confident? Yeah. Well, we were always unsexually confident in Ireland, Simon, let's be honest. <laughs> not, not something we were great at. No, without, no, no. Uh, you know, no. a few points. So I would say that sometimes, you know, there's flooding of information. So I, I have several friends, obviously, who work in colleges who have young men in, in first and second year college coming and going, you know, I don't know what. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Um, I feel like I've been shackled. I'm afraid if I go ahead, I don't if I'm going to be accused of something. Um, literally right. just at a loss and scared and not feeling good enough and not feeling equipped. And maybe the only healthy sex they've ever seen or any sex at all is in pornography. So they're feeling very um, not enough, not good enough, very underskilled. And not able to have that conversation because they're 21 and they have never had a conversation around sex. They've had humbly, awkward, messy sex, but they've never had an actual conversation with another human being, which is really sad. What about the fear then in young men of being falsely accused? Because, of course, we hear some, not often, but some terrible false accusations for certain reasons. But because then we live in, a, you know, as you said, there is a rape culture. Then you get young men who are, you know, who have no bad intentions, but are feeling like, I, I don't know, do I want to put myself into that situation or, you know, how do I do it? Because, of course, maybe they don't have the education. So, it, like, I suppose the biggest fear people have in the future, because the world becomes so politically correct, that people won't go near each other at all because of what could happen. See, the thing to remember about false accusation, this is where the media are very, um, they don't really understand. It tends to get blown out of proportion. False accusation is quite rare. And I'm going to give you a, an English stat. Um, so research done by the Crown Court in the UK. Um, you are more likely as a white male to be raped by another white male than be falsely accused of rape. Okay, okay. Okay, so that's how rare false accusation is. Where that happens mostly is in um, teenage circles and where it never gets to an adult. And this is often where, this is where Galway Crisis Centre were asked in. So false accusation will happen among teenage relationships. And I would say, now I am biased because I do work in a rape crisis centre, nine times out of ten there was sex without consent and nine times out of ten the female was intoxicated and, and groomed into that. But for the most part, I'm breaking this down now, for the most part, that female won't report, never report, because that, that female is so entrenched in his or her own victim blaming that she knows there's no point, which is incredibly sad. So she never gets to a sexual assault treatment unit. She never gets the counseling. She becomes a victim of sexual assault that she's not going to bother because she's read the newspapers. She's seen the court cases. She has seen the victim, the female thrown out. 
and the boys uh, have their hands shook or, or you know, uh, all of the stories are all there and that we're far more entrenched in victim blaming than we are in the opposite. So we tolerate, we tolerate perpetrators and we double abuse victims. Yes, I understand. It's, and the media will run with it. It makes me nauseous. The media will stay with the false accusation. Yeah, it's like a bigger story when fact. it's a false accusation. No, not, not remembering that that one false accusation is rare and that there's 99 more sitting at home going, what's the point? I won't be believed. I suppose in some ways, though, that because, you know, rape is a very heavy crime, and, you know, if somebody does something and they make that mistake, they have to pay the price. But the thing is, if you have a situation where it's like a, there is that very rare case where somebody is just out to get revenge against somebody and it, it gets through, you know, most of the counselors will probably know, OK, this is not real. There's something wrong with the story here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I say that if it does get past it then people are kind of shocked to say, well, why would you go that far to ruin somebody's life? So that's why I think it's more of a drama and media frenzy. And, and it's unfortunately, it's bad for everybody. And, and the, even if the guy is perfectly, perfectly fine, he did nothing wrong. The problem is it does. He has the, you've canceled culture, you're everything. It affects his life. But the problem is it makes it much more difficult for all the other victims to come forward when you have those things, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what we see. That's the reality is the vast majority of women won't bother. They just won't bother, you know, and it's always worth repeating. You know, that piece of research in the UK, I, 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 people are blown away by it, as we were when we read it first. It's like I want to put it on a T-shirt. So as a white male, you're far more likely to be raped by another white male than you are to be falsely accused. Saying that, the a big thing, obviously, you were saying there, you deal with a lot of young men who have been, you know, sexually violated or, you know, abused. So it's a thing because a lot of people will put, you know, the go rape crisis center and centers like this down to helping women. But you help a lot of young men now. Is male rape? something that has grown or has the levels of it are higher or lower than in the past? So I would say um, male rape has always been there, just like female rape. But we're now talking about it. It's also used in film and that and it's used um, as a weapon of war. And how I kind of describe rape to my teenage audience is for me, for somebody that's worked this long in this hub, for want of a better word. For me, male rape is proof that it has nothing to do with sexual desire or having an orgasm or getting off. All about, you know, intimidating and violating and sexually assaulting somebody else. It's violence. And power. And power. So it's control, violence and power. And it's important to remember that the, the straight men are raped by other straight men. Now, you do have gay men raping other gay men as well. But for the most part, straight men who get sexually assaulted or raped are raped by other straight men. And that is proof that is it a violent wow. act and nothing at all to do with sexual desire. So it moves it's anywhere from 9 to 11%. That's probably extremely underreported. So about, they say like for, for every woman that comes through the door of a rape crisis center, you know, only 10% of men will come. And they're a different type of men in terms of they'll be aware of the service. They'll know we see men. So the average male would say, well, there's no place for me in a rape crisis center because that's where women go. So we, we've worked hard to break that myth and say, please come for support. We will, we will see yeah. you. We will take care of you. We will process this crime with you. We will help you towards paths of healing because 
again, in society, men tend to turn to addictions. They tend to get very angry. They tend to blame themselves even more so than women. And that the short term effects of, of male violence on male violence is very dramatic and only goes one way if that person isn't supported and held and believed and, and helped heal in that. So we welcome men, all rape crisis centers in Ireland that welcome men. And, you know, even in your name, even it's funny how a name because, you know, you have organizations in Ireland, Women's Aid and, you know, all over the world. So that a name alone can put men off, because, for example, if you were called the Galway Women's Rape Crisis Center, you know, men would be like, well, I definitely can't go in there because that's not for me. So that simple omission of the word women, where it's for everybody, everybody. can, you know, may, it's like it's like a thing where you, it's not a barrier then because people are like saying, a lot of men probably in the past were thinking, oh, that's probably only for women. But now it's good that they're realizing these centers are for everybody. And it's a human crime. You know, although 94 percent of perpetrators are male, we still welcome male victims of all sexual violence. You know, that, that like we would never turn anybody away from our door. You know, so I think it's really important that men hear and know that we're here for them as well. OK, so. Let's say, Susan, with a lot of the work that you've been doing over the last few years, how has it changed from, you know, the work that you've done in the past? Because you mentioned that you use a lot more social media and, you know, it's more online kind of fundraising and everything. But is it easier now or more difficult to start a fundraising campaign? Well, I think what we're trying to do here in the Rape Crisis Centre is to as I was saying to you earlier, Simon, is to just highlight what we do. And I think when people realize what you're doing and they become interested in it, they start to volunteer more, they become more open to your campaigns and they're more likely to support us in our fundraising bin as well. So it's really important that we raise our profile within the community, that people are aware that we're here, what we do. As you mentioned there, like, some men mightn't even be aware that they can come to the centre. So, like, have you know, getting the chance to have this podcast and to showcase what we do, that in turn then is like, we'll have a knock-on effect in our fundraising. People will realise the positive impact that we can have within the community and how they can support us by, by supporting us through our fundraising campaign. So while we raise our profile and people become aware of what we do, it in turn then helps with our fundraising. Um, so it's really key that we, we get some awareness out there, that we're getting our services highlighted and all what we do into the, the wider community so that people know what it is that we're about. Whether it's easier now or harder, it's always hard to fundraise, Simon. <laughs> there's, no easy, there's no easy gig of fundraising. It's changed. It has changed hugely um, due to COVID, obviously. It's always and hard, yeah the restrictions that came about because of that. As I mentioned earlier, we had to migrate onto online platforms with all our fundraising in the blink of an eye, really, you know, overnight. And all the, you know, the additional work that comes with that, the learning um, for a smaller organization like ourselves, that was a new a new battleground for us. Um, we, we continue to use uh, social media as I said, it's for an awareness raising campaigns as well as our fundraising campaigns. And it does help us reach a wider audience. So in that regard, it is more beneficial for us to be able to get our message across to those that may need our services. 
um, with our, you know, awareness raising campaigns, we can reach a younger audience as well. They're all on social media. It's like, you know, as I said, with COVID, that was where they gravitated towards when they couldn't um, socialize in normal circumstances. It was all online. So the information is available easier for them. It's easier for them to access. So um, in terms of our online presence, that's been beneficial. Um, I, we're starting to return to our community events, which is great because, you know, it's very important for smaller communities like Galway City, Galway County, that we're visually present as well to remind people that we are there, that they, they can support us. Because that's how we would have been present prior to COVID with our community events and that. So we, we're trying to reconnect again to the community, to our volunteers, to our supporters. And that is a reconnection in, in, in some ways. It's a reconnection to where we were before COVID. And I know I'm going on about COVID, but with fundraising, that really did impact how we, we interacted with our, with our volunteers and with our supporters. So it's, it's about learning how to reconnect. I suppose people have been out of social scene for a while so it's slowly starting to get back to those events and those links within the community you know one thing you mentioned there susan that a podcast is good for this is that when you talk about like rape and sexual violence it it is a long conversation you know we've talked for an hour and a half now nearly about it and it has to be a long conversation so the problem is that when you totally, yeah. when you talk about when you see rape mentioned in the media, whether it's like the Late Late Show or, you know, sometimes they're like sound bites because they're 15 minutes maybe of a chat with somebody or, you know, for example, you could be on the radio promoting a fundraising thing. But you don't get these kind of details and you don't get these hard questions and you don't get the kind of detail Michelle was giving us there on local radio. And a lot of it is down to people. There, people are like, no, no, we can't talk about that. That's another conversation. So the great thing about podcasts now is we can be more frank, more open. We can say things without censorship and we can talk about the hard facts and the hard details that people need to hear in order to educate themselves and have that long conversation. That's so important. I mean, we were delighted, like, as I knew you, Simon, for years. And when I was chatting to you and you were saying about GRCC getting a chance to, to you know, showcase what we do really I suppose for putting it in, the, in, the, in that sense it was you know we jumped the chance because it is very hard to get across what we do to showcase how positive our services can be to those that may have experienced sexual abuse and trauma and the importance of people supporting us and it's been people have shied away from supporting organizations like ours because again of the association that other people may have, that if they see somebody supporting us, that, oh, they start thinking, is, is there a reason behind this, you know? You know, and to bring all this out to the open, you know, to talk within schools, what Michelle is doing, that will get rid of all yeah, that. I so when yeah. these teenagers are out in the working world, they're happy to come and volunteer for us. They're happy to come and to do a fundraising event for us because they know the positive impact that their contribution can have to, you know, getting rid. Hopefully that's the main thing. You know, I don't think you can ever get rid of, you know, every negative aspect of sexual abuse and trauma. That that probably wouldn't, in an ideal world, that would be 
you know what you'd want but that's not likely to ever happen but they know what they're how they can contribute to making it a better place to um by by fundraising for us that we can continue to educate younger people like they're educated within the school system that we can have counseling where it's needed and that they're small contribution or big contribution no matter what they do is going to help have a positive impact and that they're not going to be thinking twice about volunteering for an organization like ours because they're so open to the whole idea you know from an early age so um i think we touched on it a couple of times and we didn't really go into it you know i suppose about the whole religious aspect you know um our, you know that sex and that wasn't talked about didn't exist really years ago so we have been very much molded through the years by these constraints that have been put on us wherever they've come from whether it was through the religious orders or schools or whatever way or just again culturally being passed down and put upon us so allowing these children to get rid of those um ideas and concepts it just there's a lot more freedom there for them to make decisions, to fundraise, to work for us, to volunteer. And I'm really hopeful in a few years that we will see that. The schools are going to have a lot more volunteers, a lot more people openly fundraising. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned something there that I never really thought of. I'm just th- I was thinking about as you were speaking that you said there that. For some people, being volunteers or whatever, they mightn't want to be associated because of what other people might think or whatever. So that's something, isn't it? Because if I in the morning say, oh, I am, I'm going to do a a fundraising thing for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And then maybe someone says to me, oh, are you an alcoholic or were you an alcoholic? So there's always an association. So I can imagine in your cases, where if people volunteer, maybe they have a fear or oh, people that think I'm a sexual, you know, abuse victim or whatever. So that can maybe be a little bit of a deterrent to them helping, no? Oh, yeah, totally. It is absolutely a deterrent because it's this whole shame thing that's associated with sexual abuse that it's always the victim nearly. If you were abused, why? What did you, how did you drag it on yourself? What did you do to cause that? And so that that is definitely a reason why people wouldn't. It's easier not to. You have to nearly justify it, like why you're a volunteer, yeah. don't you? Um, and it is. And it's nearly like, it's sort of ne- it's nearly, you could draw a parallel there to what happens in court. It's the victim is always justifying or nearly trying to, you know, show themselves in a better light, that it's not their fault. And then people that are volunteering for us, they're nearly like, <laughs> you're wearing a T-shirt. Uh, no, just because I'm volunteering here doesn't mean that I've had a sexual trauma or something. You know, they nearly do feel the need to justify their association. Whereas I think if this is something that's talked about in schools, in the media, and it's more mainstream and more um, acceptable, for want of a better word, I think people are going to be more open to be seen to be associated with us, you know? It's nearly like you'd need to have a T-shirt that says, I am not a victim, but I know a victim. You know what I mean? Oh, that's a good or, T-shirt. Because, <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, it, it's it's true, though, isn't it? Because just being really frank and brutally honest about it, people always have these fears about being associated with things for certain reasons. And they don't. Some people would say, oh, well, you know, if I'm doing that, people think I'm a victim or I'm, you know, there's some association with me or they helped me or whatever. And it's it's a shame that's there, isn't it? Because I imagine you'd have far more volunteers, for, except for those little kind of things, no? Oh, yeah, if it was cancer or heart conditions. Yeah, 
much more extended and like the hospice an amazing charity but they they are they are inundated with money they have people to count their money because everybody <laughs> knows somebody that's died you know yes yeah everybody also knows somebody that's been sexually assaulted abused as a child or a teenager so but that's just not nearly as acceptable as no, no. in saying that it is getting better it is. When I first went out on Flag Day in Churchgate Collection, I was abused for holding a bucket. Really? You know, absolutely. And and that has changed over the years. And the other thing that I've really noticed is that women are getting angry. They're like, you know what? Like, no more. So reporting is up. Yeah, okay, it's, that's it good. It often doesn't go anywhere, but it's up. It's definitely up. So they're more likely to access. Younger people are more likely to access support services. They're more likely to say, look, I have been raped or I have been sexually assaulted. Unlike, again, my generation or my mother's generation that just didn't. You know, they lived with it. So it's changing. And I always use the um, the piece about, you know, when we stopped smoking in pubs, like we really got it. Or when we stopped using plastic bags, we really got it in Ireland. So I say to the kids all the time, when we get this, we're good. You know, we won't eradicate sexual violence. It's the dark underbelly of who we are as human beings. We won't eradicate it, but we can stop tolerating it. It's a mountain with many peaks, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if we could stop the cultural tolerance, if we could stop the victim blaming, if we could get people, especially victims of child sexual abuse, into courts of law. And we've had five, I think, in the last two weeks um, on the fronts of our newspapers where their perpetrators were jailed, um, foster dads and brothers and and grandfathers. Um, More of that, unfortunately, is what the public have to get to see so that there is less tolerance. It's the tolerance that's doing more damage. You know, a rape victim will always say to me, it's not what happened. It's how I was received or how I wasn't believed or how that my mother was angry at me because of how I was dressed or I was drinking or I, you know, climbed out the window that night to go to the party at 15. So therefore it was my fault. It is never the victim's fault. Perpetrators choose to hurt, violate or sexually assault somebody else. What they were wearing, drinking, where they were going, walking down a lane without lights, none of that is relevant. You know, so we have to turn it back onto the perpetrator. And if we can change that, if we can shift society in a way that culturally says no more, let's look at the perpetrator, let's stop blaming the victim. So like, you know, if I was if my house was broken into and I had a glass door or a glass window, you wouldn't say, well, what were you thinking? Why did you put a glass door in? You know, that was really stupid of you. Glass is so easy to break. You know, it's like, but that no, was stupid. no, we yeah. didn't do that. But we do it to victims of sexual violence every single day in our media, in our court systems. Mothers blame their own daughters rather than having the courage to turn around and say, where's the perpetrator here? Let's look. It's like when the dad say, you're not going out dressed like that. And then if something did happen, they're nearly said, well, I pre-warned you, you know, and it's it's terrible, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's more damning. It's more hurtful. It's what a victim will hold on to where they might recover from the crime with the right support. And but they'll never forget what brother, dad, mom, friends, how their college, yeah. how their school. Yeah. So that's why people come into a rape crisis center. And, you know, there is a bubble of support and understanding and knowledge that society you know tolerates this horrendous crime and that there's nothing wrong with you it's society and how we look at it and view it and how we let perpetrators off with it meanwhile the victim is left holding a lifetime of pain and the only place he or she feels comfortable is a rape crisis center the, the mental health abuse like after the fact is nearly 10 times worse than the actual act 
you know, nothing can seem worse than the act. But when you have to live through that abuse and judgmental people and, you know, uh, obviously, if it goes to court, the mental health part of it is far worse. Mm, far, far worse. Totally. It's, it's judgment all the time. It's judgment. The victim is totally judged. And we would have all, you know, often say this, that it's like you hear the whole background of the victim during the trial and nothing on the person that has committed this offence. And so the focus is, is, should be switched around altogether. You know, not the victim shouldn't be the one on, on trial. And that's in essence what happens, I think. No. Two things I want to address. I want to uh, talk just more about some of your future fundraising things you have in the pipeline, I should say, rather. But before I do, just going back to the sexual assault treatment unit. Okay, so Michelle, for people, girls, boys, men, women, anybody out there who has found themselves in a situation or has been a victim, whether it's been the past or yesterday or today, can you just explain, like in, you know, I don't want you to to make it very simple, but can you just kind of tell them in a way that if they do go to those sexual assault treatment center, you know, because I'm sure people are afraid what's going to happen and everything. So could you tell us very briefly, I know you mentioned it before, like the process and then, and also tell them like how they can do it. So the, the sexual assault treatment unit is a unit um, that is on alert for a call all the time. There's a myth in Ireland that you have to go through the guards. If you're over 18 years of age, you do not have to go through the guards. You can go through us if, if that's a choice, but you can also private referral. And that's a really big deal to be able to pick up the phone and say, look, I have been sexually assaulted or abused. So ideally, you can be seen within 72 hours. And they say that that's in case you want to have forensics collected. But from our perspective, we would say whether it's been three days, three weeks, three years or 30 years, it's all about getting in there and getting the medical attention and getting checked. So they do STI checks. They do morning after pill if it's needed. And there you will arrive at the unit and you will be met with somebody like myself who has does the, um, the support. And this is what's going to happen. And this is why they do this. Then you'll be met by two forensic nurses who will go through the process with you. You'll have a forensic doctor. You will undress with a, a large piece of paper around you where everything is removed and um, they will go it's 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 a scary process but the people are so good at what they do that they make it so much easier it's free it's confidential and it is actually on the tomb road across from the trappers inn um so as i said that a fabulous team of people a forensic doctor will wait for you and go through the process from that if you would like to call the guards they will call the guards for you and they'll do a preliminary statement the nurses are now trained to take forensics from your from orally and that can be put to one side evidence can be kept gathered and kept up for a year until you make your mind up about what you'd like to do with it. Then you are given all of the supports, the web of supports around that. So if you agree to being contacted by somebody on frontline from a rape crisis centre or you can contact them and then set up a crisis initial and you can get support from us for up to six weeks or longer if needed. A lot of the time it ends up being longer and that's okay because one of the things that we're most proud of is we try not to cap our sessions because just like this conversation it takes a lot of time sometimes to to go through that process and basically get to a place where you can start to forgive yourself because victims will always blame themselves so there's a bit of psychological education in there where you're going 
no, this was not your fault. And the sexual assault treatment unit now more than ever, is it's really important that you um, get tested for STIs. And, and those tests go come back three weeks later, three months later. And, and that medically, you know, you can go back for appointments. Like it's a really good service. It's something our government pays for that that works. It's really effective. Um, as I said, lovely team, self-referral, refer on to ourselves if that's what you want. If you don't want to, you can leave it for a while. But lovely team that will manage that entire process really, really well for you and, and check that you are okay psychologically, medically, and just support any needs you have around that. Okay. That's really good. Thank you for that information. And just obviously that, you know, is dealing with more recent stuff as well so then with we'll call them cold cases or you know cases that are 10 or 15 years old is it a similar process without the forensics yeah absolutely you you just checked internally and externally and checked in how you are psychologically um but it's really about if you feel you have been assaulted or raped and that you may be carrying an sti you know that's the piece where you know you really need to have that checked and make sure that you're okay medically. right okay so to deal with that straight away Deal with that as soon as you can and then have access to ourselves in terms of support and que any questions you might have. Um, I would say for the most part, young people, as resilient as they are, are in and out of that process really quickly. They don't stay for years. You know, they come in and they have four, six, ten sessions and they're literally out the gap back into their lives, hopefully back in school or college, living their lives, compartmentalized this experience. And they can come back to us even when they need to. The our door is always open. We don't cap our service. OK, so, you know, just to finish up, Susan, can you tell us about stuff that you have in the pipeline that you can tell us about, obviously, upcoming things that we can kind of promote on the show and let people know about? Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to get more out more into the community and um, we've collaborated with a couple of organizations. And we just after having a lovely summertime session, live music event, and that was just last Friday, Simon. So we're a bit late with that, but it was great to get um, out within into the open to be visible and to reconnect with the Gaul people. So that was that was a lovely event to, to start off our summer session safer. So we will we are going to be doing come down with me for GRCC and that's going to be up and running within the next um, month or two. So for the summer and we'll be asking people to hold a garden party, barbecue dine indoors, whatever the weather allows, <laughs> al fresco, if possible. We're not as lucky yeah. as you, Simon, over in Spain, but <laughs> sure, we'll go with it. We'll have the umbrellas. So we'll be getting people to um, invite family, friends around, groups, and um, to, to host a party, whether it's barbecue, whether it's, you know, fine dining, whatever they want, and to contribute then to Galway RCC. So it's on behalf of us. So that's going to be up on our social media soon. And that's going to be our, for the summer. We have our flag day this Saturday. So we probably won't be out on the airwaves when that's happening. But as I said, we're delighted to be back in the community. So we're in Galway City and we'll be out there collecting on Saturday. And it's great to have our volunteers re-engaged and some of the corporate, our corporate partners supporting us there and other corporates. So that's really interesting as well. And, and it's great, as I said, to be out and about and visible within the community and to let people know we're still there. Our service is still there for them and we still believe them and are there to support them. So I said, visibility is really good. We'll have another flag day later on in the year in November, but um, that's another while off. 
and our church gate collections. So our community events are back up and running. We'll see how we get on with those. Hopefully there'll be no more hiccups <laughs> like we've had before. So, um, yeah, so we're also having the pipeline another bigger event. But Great. instead for Michelle, we're just discussing it before we're on with you. So we're not going to say too much about that. But what we might do is, if we get a chance, we might come on and let you know what's going on some other point on okay, another podcast okay. if that, that suits. Definitely, yeah. And we can promote anything for you guys. Yeah. So once we have more details on that and we have more people tied in, you know, um, their arms twisted to take part in that, we will come back and let you know. But we're still doing, we have on our website, we have um, once off donation and also what we're trying to promote is recurring donations and we have a facility on our website for that and what the recurring donation it allows us to plan ahead because we know what income is coming in it allows us to plan plan more projects more in-house supports and that because we we know there's an income stream coming in and anybody can can set up that and it's on our website it's galwayrcc.ie and it's very simple. So they can do one-off donation there or they can set up a recurring donation. And like, I mean, any amount is like, any amount is welcome, whether that's five euros a month or up to 21 euros a month, then they can get um, tax back on that or we can get tax back on that rather. So yeah, there's quite a few things there. And we're always open to people fundraising for us because it's just me really in the fundraising department. So anyone that wants to come in and do it, there's only so that's much great. I can do. <laughs> So any help is really appreciated. Any ideas? So yeah. Yes, of course. Well, you know you're you're doing a great job there, Susan, and you know you you've done a lot of the great projects for fundraising. So keep it up, you know. So ladies and Michelle as well, I want to say you know thank you for all the information, and it's been really you know helpful, and there's lots of great resources there, and you know with these kind of things, whether it's information for teens. For young boys, you know, for, for girls, victims, anybody who's involved in this circle of, you know, sex, violence, rape, all of these things affects people in some ways. And even if it's friends or families that can help them by listening to this show and helping somebody, it's a great thing. So I want to thank you for coming on and giving us all this information and best of luck with everything and, you know, commend you and say well done for all the great work you're doing and long may it continue and grow. Now, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a delicate subject and we hope all those cases go down. But in a real world, that probably won't happen. So all I want to say is continue the great work you're doing. It's fa fan fabulous. And uh, thank you very much, Michelle and Susan from the Galway Rape Crisis Centre for coming on the Collective Whisper podcast. Thanks, Thanks. OK, thank you very much, Michelle Caulfield and Susan Costello from the Galway Rape Crisis Centre. It was a very intriguing chat and very informative. And thank you very much for taking the time to come on and tell us all about your wonderful organisation and the great work you do for rape victims all across Galway and Connacht and everywhere. And we want to thank you and commend you for all the work you've done over the last few years and the great work that you continue doing every day. And we wish you the best with all your fundraisers and we urge people to give what they can and to help you whenever they can and also to volunteer for such a wonderful organization. And unfortunately, this type of organization, we shouldn't need it. But in today's society, people are still not as informed and people still have these things going on in their lives. and. 
it's great that there's something there that can help people who have had problems in the past and continue to have problems from sexual abuse and the implications that comes after it. So thank you once again, ladies, and thank you to the Gore Rape Crisis Centre. Okay, everybody, we're glad you liked the show and we're glad you continue listening and we want to thank you for staying here with us and we hope that the content is to your liking and we just want to say, you know, please feel free to share the show with your friends, subscribe where you see the button, follow where you see the button, but most of all, stay listening because we enjoy having you here and it's, you know, you that makes the show, the people who listen. So thank you very much for that. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. And until we see you next time, take care of yourself, your family and everyone else you love. Bye bye.